0: From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Mimi Gerges.
1: This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm Mimi Gerges. If the government shuts down in two days, the Defense Department says it will be forced to furlough nearly 400,000 civilian employees. It also will cancel temporary duty travel and attendance at conferences. The department says military medical and dental care will continue, as will child care services, but hours at those offices could be shortened. Active duty troops and reserve personnel working on active duty functions will continue to work. At the Department of Veterans Affairs, 96% of the VA employees will not be furloughed because Congress approved advance appropriations in last year's budget. Most VA programs covering medical care, benefit processing and burials will continue. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin told a Senate committee yesterday that the collapse of the Afghan army in the final weeks of the war took top commanders by surprise. He said they, quote, did not fully comprehend the depth of corruption and poor leadership in the Afghan army's senior ranks. He said the military leadership also misjudged the Afghan army's will to fight. Austin also said staying past the August 31st deadline to withdraw would have put troops in harm's way because the Taliban had made clear that their cooperation with the pullout would end on that date. Active duty troops and National Guard members living in 56 U.S. cities designated as having higher rents and housing shortages will receive temporary pay increases ranging from 10 to 20 percent. Under the so-called Basic Allowance for Housing, troops still must certify that they are incurring higher housing costs when moving to one of the areas. Certification and applications for the increase varies by service branch. The higher allowance will take effect October 1st and end December 31st. The Defense Department has yet to determine the 2022 housing allowance, which will take effect the 1st of January. Hypersonic weapons can travel at a speed of at least five times the speed of sound. That's around 3,800 miles per hour. Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall says he's not satisfied with the pace of development for those hypersonic missiles and says there's some progress on technology, but he wants it to be even better. Mark Lewis is executive director of the Emerging Technologies Institute at the National Defense Industrial Association. He's former director of defense research and technology at the Pentagon. Mark, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: So has the Air Force soured on hypersonics?
2: Well, I would certainly hope not. Um, we have studied hypersonics extensively. We know that it's a critical capability for uh, future, the future of national defense. So I would actually hope that, that they're going full speed ahead.
1: Why is hypersonic weapon development taking so long?
2: Well, it, I would argue it's more due to politics and bureaucracy than technology. Um, we have the technology. We flew the first hypersonic air-breathing system, the X-51, um, uh, 11 years ago. So it's a technology that we've tended to invest in. We start, we stop, we have programs that don't quite come to fruition, we discontinue them. It's actually been rather frustrating.
1: You mentioned air breathing. Mm -hmm. Explain in non-technical terms how these things fly and how they get to be so fast.
2: So there are are two ways to power a hypersonic vehicle through the atmosphere. The first is with a conventional rocket. I light off a rocket, I get it up to speed. In many cases, I'll have the hypersonic thing actually separate from the rocket and glide the rest of the way. The other way is with a jet engine, Um, an engine that has a hole in the front, it's got an inlet, it swallows air as it travels, and it uses the oxygen in the air to burn with the fuel. That's why we call it air breathing.
1: What do we use these weapons for? Give me a use scenario where we'd have to deploy one.
2: So there's a very wide range of applications for hypersonic systems. It could be a very rapid response, relatively long-range weapon uh, for a a precision strike. It could be a tactical system, a cruise missile that comes off the wing of an airplane or that's launched from a surface ship or a submarine to do a rapid strike. Often we we would envision it as a precision strike against a high-value target.
1: And how far along are we with the technology? Give me a timeline. When would we see these built and deployed and used?
2: Well, our, our goal actually, when I was in the Pentagon, our goal was to have these depl- uh, built and deployed by the end of this decade. Um, and, and again, it's really not a technology hurdle. It's a financial issue, and it's a programmatic issue.
1: So you're not going to give me a timeline? No.
2: So, so, <laughs> So it's difficult to look at the time on you know just just this past weekend, Raytheon flew their uh, hawk uh, hypersonic demonstrator the the high uh, air-breathing weapons concept um, basically that that showed once again that we know how to build these systems we know how to build the engines we know how to build the the, the airframes we understand the materials that are required to build these we can we can design the guidance systems that will control these systems um, the next step really is first to get them out of the demonstration phase, the development phase, into the actual production phase, and then produce at scale. Um, ultimately, our goal, is, our, our goal was, and hopefully still is, to produce not, not a few handful of these weapons, but to have them in the hundreds or actually in the thousands to provide a, a, an adequate capability and deterrent.
1: Okay, but we need to talk about the money. If you're talking about thousands of these, how much does one cost?
2: So a big issue with hypersonics is the cost of of these systems. And, in fact, I think one of the great misnomers of hypersonics is that it will be inordinately expensive. Um, A system such as uh, that Raytheon just flew this weekend, um, we envision about $2 million a copy. That's about twice the cost of a conventional cruise missile, um, but if it's much more effective, the cost per effect can actually be much lower than hy- with, with hypersonics.
1: But also, there's the R and D that goes into it. Doesn't that add substantially to the price?
2: So it does, and that that gets amortized. But I, I would point out the department has put a tremendous in, uh, amount of funding now into hypersonics. Um, the, uh, the most recent uh, Pentagon budget, the 22 budget, um, um, reconfirmed the investment the department is making. It's quite significant. Um, it's, it's, I like to say it's almost a NASA's budget worth of funding over the five-year plan in order to get us to, uh, 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 to, to uh, hypersonics at scale.
1: So I was going to ask you about Congress. Mm-hmm. Are they fully on board because they're the ones that are going to have to fund this?
2: So I would say we get tremendous support from Congress. Uh, there is actually a hypersonics caucus in the Congress. Um, Congress has been extremely uh, uh, aware of, of the capabilities of hypersonics, and also I think they've been concerned about developments overseas, work that China and Russia have done in hypersonics. They've been briefed on, on their activities, and I think they've been very responsive and very supportive of the department's efforts.
1: Uh, tell me about Russia and China. Right, because these are going to have to counter them, deter them. What do they have in terms of hypersonic weapons?
2: Correct. Well, the first thing I would say is we would want hypersonic systems regardless of whether Russia or China were developing them. But the reality is Russia and China are developing these systems. Um, Russia has built in their legacy from the Cold War. They've developed, uh, and they've been very, very bold about, about uh, uh, talking about their their systems. They're developing maneuvering hypersonic systems to augment their ICBM fleet. And these would be nuclear systems, by the way, which I'll, 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 I'll point out, we are not doing nuclear hypersonic systems. China has invested very, very heavily across the board in hypersonics. Um, I like to say we did their homework for them. They they built on our capabilities. They read our papers. They they followed our research. They followed our developments. And now, Wait, did they, they
1: follow it or did they steal it?
2: Uh, both, actually. So some of it was open literature. Some of it was just, frankly, stolen. And uh, they also read our documents that we said hypersonics is a really important feature capability. And they believe what we said. I wish we had believed it a little bit more. Um, And so China has invested heavily in, they've built wind tunnels, they've invested in their universities. And and one of the advantages of a a top-down dictatorial government is they they, uh, can get things done often very efficiently. All right.
1: Well, Mark, we're going to take a quick pause here. We're going to come back and talk about something else, okay? Very good. Coming next, we turn our conversation with Mark Lewis to the future of nuclear power in space. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Spacecraft today can only travel so far and so fast with current rocket technology. But nuclear power could be the key that allows spacecraft to fly farther and faster. The Department of Defense and NASA will refocus on nuclear power systems for future space capabilities. Mark Lewis is executive director of the Emerging Technologies Institute at the National Defense Industrial Association. The U.S. government had worked on uh, nuclear-powered rockets back in the 1960s. Why are we just now rediscovering this idea?
2: So you're exactly right. There there was extensive work done, not just research, but development, and engines were built and there were even plans in the 1960s that we would have nuclear rockets that would uh, power the later Apollo missions to the moon. And then ultimately they were seen as the, the engines that would get us to Mars. Um, in the early 1970s, the White House lost interest in, I think they lost interest in, in, in the Apollo missions, but then lost interest and, and, uh, in nuclear power and, and support waned.
1: And so that technology kind of just got shelved? I mean, is it still valid? Is it still useful? Do we have to reinvent the wheel now?
2: So, so the technology was shelved, but we actually don't have to reinvent the wheel because we pretty much remember a lot of the work that was done. So there were two key programs. One was a program called Kiwi, which was a, a joke because a Kiwi is a bird that doesn't fly. The Kiwi rocket engine never flew, so that was a joke. And then there was a, a program called Project Nerva, which was the more advanced version. And under NERVA, uh, engines were built, tested. They were run, um, they, uh, some of the NERVA engines were run for uh, almost half an hour. The, the engines could be started and stopped. So it was everything that you need for, for a space propulsion capability.
1: So what new capabilities hmm. would um, nuclear thermal rockets enable? What would we be able to do
2: with so nuclear? Here's, here's the key, key thing about a nuclear thermal rocket. It gives you twice the thrust for the amount of fuel that you consume compared to a chemical rocket. So you can think of it as better bang for the buck. In in, in aerospace engineering terms, we refer to the specific impulse of a rocket. That's the amount of thrust you get divided by the rate at which you burn fuel. So a nuclear rocket basically gives you more thrust. You get a bigger push for the amount of fuel that you're burning.
1: Now, if you've got nuclear power, Mm -hmm. you're gonna need a nuclear reactor. Correct. Is that safe? I mean, you're talking about launching a nuclear reactor into space. Nobody wants to see some sort of Chernobyl accident going on up there. So,
2: in fact, that's one of the first questions that always comes up when people talk about nuclear power in space. The reality is we can build reactors that are absolutely safe, that can survive the worst launch accident and not spread uh, radioactive material. In fact, we already launch radioactive material on a fairly regular basis. We power our, our spacecraft, especially spacecraft that operate in the distant solar system, on something called RTGs, radioisotope thermal generators, which is a lump of radioactive material that decays, gives off heat, and that heat is turned into electric power. Those are actually more dangerous than nuclear reactors, and yet we launch them and we do so safely.
1: So how important are these, is this technology to military strategy? How will this change things for the Pentagon, if at all?
2: So one of the things that we've learned over the past decade or so, we've realized space is not a sanctuary. We used to think that if we launched something in space, it was safe from attack. Now we know that's not true. Russia, China have capabilities. And one of the ways you might want to respond to an attack is to get out of the way and a nuclear rocket has the potential to give you high thrust so you can maneuver out of the way of an attack. It also gives you the ability to change your orbit, change your trajectory, so you're less predictable. So it makes, it it, it introduces a degree of safety in in space.
1: Can you give us kind of a non-technical explanation of how this actually works? How you could use
2: nuclear power to thrust a rocket for propulsion, for power, so in principle a nuclear thermal rocket is a very simple device you have a nuclear reactor which is essentially just a heater it's generating it's generating heat and then you flow some fuel some liquid through it hydrogen turns out to be the best fuel to use it gets really hot expands out a nozzle and you get thrust Uh,
1: you know i always have to ask you what are our adversaries doing right right? is china and russia doing this? Are they using nuclear power in space?
2: So we, we, we don't know about China. We do know that Russia actually had a long history of putting nuclear reactors into space. In fact, um, a, a few decades ago, we, we, the United States, bought some Russian reactors. Uh, we're, we're looking at the, the possibility of putting their reactors on our, on our spacecraft after the fall of the Soviet Union. Ultimately, we didn't do so, but, but they've had a long history in this area.
1: So, you know, we said that you can use this to go farther and faster. Mm-hmm. Is this what gets us to Mars?
2: So, I actually happen to think nuclear thermal is a a really good way to get us to Mars. And there are other solutions. You could do something called nuclear electric. That's where you have a nuclear reactor, but instead of heating something like hydrogen, you generate electric power, and then you have an electric engine. Um, The advantage of nuclear thermal is, because it gives you such high thrust, it gets you to Mars faster. And it also gives you more options. You can abort your mission more easily with nuclear thermal. So something goes wrong, there's a solar flare, someone gets sick on the mission, it's easier to turn around on a nuclear thermal rocket is than it is on any other engine.
1: And we definitely need to get back, because I've seen that movie. Yes, yes. <laughs> Nobody wants to get stuck on Mars. No,
2: you do not want to get stuck on Mars. That is absolutely right.
1: All right. Well, Mark, thank you so much for being on the program. My pleasure. You can find a link to Mark's op-ed at govmatters.tv resources. Up next, nuclear submarine deals in the Indo-Pacific. Straight ahead on Government Matters, deterring aggressors in the region with allied forces. We archive every episode of Government Matters on govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. The Biden administration has announced a deal to help Australia deploy nuclear-powered submarines. The trilateral agreement, which includes the United Kingdom, aims to deter Chinese aggression in the Indo-Pacific region. But implementation will be a challenge. That's according to Bradley Bowman. He's senior director for the Center on Military and Political Power at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Brad, welcome to the program. Thank you. So what were the intentions of this partnership and why had it not happened before? Obviously, Australia is one of our allies. So why didn't we ever give them nuclear submarines before?
0: It's a great question. Thanks for that. And thanks for the opportunity to discuss this with you. You know, you're exactly right. I think that nuance has been lost in a lot of the discussion. You know, it's not like uh, Australia is a new ally. They've been an ally for decades, and they're one of our most valuable allies. What happened with the, Australia, the agreement between Australia, the US, and the United Kingdom was not a new military alliance. We already have one with Australia. It really, in essence, was a military technology partnership. And that partnership is based on the fact that the United States is in a frenetic military technology competition race, competition with both China and Russia. And it's one where, frankly, uh, China is fielding, in some cases, military technology superior to that, which our own troops have, which is not a good thing. And so when you survey that problem and then assess our, our assets, you know, what do we have going for us? We have, well, we have democratic tech-savvy allies, and among those are Australia. Now, Australia has been a proud member of the uh, non-proliferation community. They're really a Boy Scout on that front. I mean, they, they really play it straight and well. We can demand and expect transparency from them. But I would say really Beijing has pushed them to this, you know, as Beijing's economy has grown, they've conducted the most ambitious military modernization effort in the history of the People's Republic of China. And as their military powers become, uh, they become more powerful militarily, they become more of a bully, frankly, throughout the region, almost every direction you look. Australia sees that and they say, you know, we need increased military capability to defend Australian interests and democratic principles versus might make right, might makes right authoritarianism and the bullying that we're seeing from Beijing. And so now, they're looking for better ways to do that.
1: Now they weren't buying um, diesel powered submarines from France and yes. as we know, they I guess pulled out of that uh, agreement yes. in favor of the US nuclear powered submarines. Explain that, why did that yeah, happen? Yeah, sure,
0: so I, I'm talking about kind of, so the, it's a partnership for military technology that's gonna last for a long time. But the first kind of most significant uh, case uh, that's gonna go through this new partnership is exactly that. It's going to provide Australia nuclear powered, not nuclear armed, nuclear powered attack submarines. Now exactly, Australia had a, a contract with France where France was gonna provide Australia diesel powered submarines, frankly, which were far less capable of what they're gonna get in, from the US and the United Kingdom. Obviously Paris was not very happy about that. They lost billions of dollars, but the bottom line is, uh, you know, just from an Australian perspective, is that nuclear-powered submarines can, can uh, travel faster, they can go farther, uh, they, they can go faster, they can stay underwater longer, and they can carry more weapons. So that's exactly the combat capability Australia wants and needs to help secure, along with America, the a free, open, inclusive Indo-Pacific.
1: So how has China reacted to this?
0: Not, China not is, well I China, would imagine. No, yeah, it's a good guess. Uh, China's reaction has been over the top, like crazy, I would say. I mean, if you look at the Global Times, which is a Chinese Communist Party mouthpiece, basically, they cited an unnamed source as threatening Australia with a nuclear attack. I mean, you heard me right. I mean, that's crazy, right? I mean, China has already nuclear-powered submarines that have nuclear weapons. Australia just wants nuclear powered submarines and says, hey, we don't want nuclear weapons. So what's good for the goose is not good good for the gander evidently. And so they're gonna threaten Australia with a nuclear strike. If you're concerned about Australian nuclear weapons, maybe Beijing, you should refrain from uh, threatening to attack them with nuclear weapons. What's behind that, right? Well, there's real fear behind that, that if you have the United States and our democratic allies like Japan and Australia and India and others, not to mention countries like the Philippines and Vietnam, fielding increased capability in that region, then it's gonna prevent Beijing from accomplishing its political objectives with military force. And after all, that's the whole objective. We don't wanna invade China. We don't We don't wish ill on the Chinese people, great civilization. We just want to prevent them from believing, deter them from believing that they can accomplish their political objectives in the South China Sea or in the Taiwan Strait with military force so that they come back to the diplomatic table. That's the goal. You
1: know, Brett, the Pentagon says it needs at least thirty. 30- sorry, 66 attack submarines to meet its operational requirements. How come that has been hard to get to and who's gonna build all the subs for the Australians? Is it, yeah, is it gonna no, be us? Great, because I yeah, don't think we can build no. enough for ourselves.
0: <laughs> right, right, it's a great question. A lot of Americans may not realize, you hear you know, you know, hear a lot of politicians talking about, oh, we're spending so much on defense, which you know we're, we're at or near post-World War II lows in terms of gross domestic product and federal spending, but we'll set that aside. What most Americans may not know is that the size of our America's attack submarine fleet is actually getting—we're getting smaller. It's getting fewer and fewer. Exactly right. The Navy says it needs roughly 66 submarines. We're going down to roughly 50 by 2026, Uh, and and, and I'm talking about Virginia-class attack submarines. Why is that? It's because we've had to retire the older submarines, the Los Angeles-class submarines, and we're not building enough of the newer Virginia-class attack submarines to replace them. And the great uh, concerning thing here is that simultaneously China is building their attack submarine fleet so that they have a larger fleet than we do. Now, to be clear, many of, most of China's submarines are diesel powered, but they do, as I said earlier, have some nuclear powered submarines and they're building more each year. And, and, and we have ours deployed around the world, whereas the vast majority of theirs are located in the Indo-Pacific where conflict is likely to occur, which means at those locations, they have more attack submarines present.
1: And very briefly, uh, Brad, what else does the Pentagon need to do to have effective deterrence in the Indo-Pacific?
0: We need to get as much uh, military combat power forward as possible with our, with our Quad allies and others to uh, persuade Beijing that they cannot accomplish their, mil- their political objectives with military force. And, and that gets to kind of the implementation problem with AUKUS. They, the Biden administration really messed up with, with respect to France. Uh, you know, some people might roll their eyes at France's concerns, but France is as active in the Indo-Pacific as any European country. Lots of bases, 8,000 or so troops, uh, naval deployments. So it was a mistake to roll this out the way we did with respect to the French.
1: All right, well, Brad, we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you so much, thank you.
1: You can find a link to Brad's article at govmatters.tv slash resources. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv and tell us what you thought about today's program. You can connect with us on LinkedIn. Follow us to get the latest updates and see what's coming up on the show. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 p.m. on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gargis.